Uh, if you have a Bible with you, uh, you can take it out, turn it on, swipe it open, however you do it, um, to Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we are in the middle of a, a sermon series uh, preaching through the book of Ephesians. Um, if you're not familiar with the Bible, or in fact, if you didn't bring a Bible with you today, we'll have the words projected on the screen for you. Um, uh, we preach through books of the Bible here pretty much verse by verse. I've taken Ephesians. It's a book we could do like, you know, probably years in. We could pr- kind of take it a couple verses a week. I- I've chosen to take large sections of it. And so today we're going to look at uh, chapter 4, verses 17 through uh, chapter 5, verse 2, actually. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we, we love to give out Bibles. Um, we have some Bibles that look like this. I'm going to use it today. Um, preacher forgot his Bible at home. What, what in the world? Who does that? Um, but we love to give away Bibles, and so we, we actually just got a new order, and they're a little bit larger print, so for those of you that are carrying the microscopic, you have to keep those, but for those of you that would like a new one, we've got some, some available, and again, we love to give those away. Uh, I don't know if you've had the, the blessed experience of building IKEA furniture, um, perhaps some of you have. A couple chuckles tell me that you have. IKEA furniture is this, this fantastic, cheaply made Swedish furniture. Uh, able to get an incredible amount of parts into the smallest boxes ever. And so it's, it's fantastic furniture. You know, it's affordable, but it looks nice. And, and if you've ever built anything, you know that it, you've got to like etch out, carve out like a whole day, like to build, you know, a, a dresser or something. But um, if, you've, if you've built an Ikea piece of furniture, you'll know that it comes with instructions. And um, you, you need these instructions. Men, these are instructions you need with Ikea. You cannot build this one without instructions. And in their instructions, there are no words. Uh, the words that there are are in, in sw- Swedish writing. And so there are pictures in Ikea's directions. And the pictures typically look like this. Don't do this. Do this. It's like a picture of like a hammer and like a screwdriver. It's like, don't do that. Instead, take this wooden dowel with this little wrench and do this. And so it's a, a picture of don't do this and do this. Today's passage actually functions almost like that for us. It's laid out in a don't do this, do this type of fashion. And so as we look at today's text, uh, you'll be thinking about Ikea furniture. So Let's read uh, the passage again. I'm going to begin in verse 17, going down through actually the first two verses of chapter 5, just by way of side note and information. Uh, the, the verses and chapter breaks in our Bibles are man-made. Those are just convenient um, inventions that, that came along centuries after the Bible was written. So those are suggestions and guidelines for us. So they're not inspired. So uh, we kind of, I think actually the first two verses of chapter 5 belong with our passage today. And so that's why I've chosen to kind of dip into chapter 5 a little bit. But uh, here's today's passage for us today, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4. Paul writes, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ." Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt 
through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we come now and we need your help. Lord, these, without your help, are just words on a page in an old ancient book that mean nothing to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bring these words to life by your Spirit, that the wind of the Spirit would blow in this place freely and frequently, that cold hearts would be warmed, that hard hearts would be softened, and that our minds might understand what it is you have for us in this passage. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know what it is about kids, but it's also true of adults, but none of us like change. Uh, right now, our six-year-old boy is a, um, he has the, uh, just a steel trap for a mind. Nothing gets by our six-year-old. If I tell him on Tuesday that on Friday we are having pancakes for breakfast, he will remember. If we tell him we're going to do something, for instance, that weekend, there is no escaping that plan he will remember. In fact, when we change plans, when we, when we alternate things, if something comes up on Friday, which is our pancake morning, something comes up that day, we can't do pancakes, or if the plans change for the weekend, if a baseball game gets rained out, my son is so disrupted by change that he calls me a liar. He actually labels me, Dad, you're a liar. And so that's, that's the level of sincerity that, that my son has about change. But, but we can all resonate with that, right? None of us truly like change. I mean, some of us are, are kind of freakish like that. And we're, we like, we're, we're always looking for the new and the, kind of the updated. But, but by and large, we live our lives avoiding change. We like rhythms. We like routines. We like uh, things that we can predict and expect and anticipate. Change is not something most of us are looking for. If you understand Christianity correctly, you must know this, that Christianity will change everything about you. You have two options with Christianity. You can either fully reject Christianity and all of its claims, that is an option, or you must fully sell out and embrace it, and it will change everything about you. There, there really is no middle ground about Christianity. But one of the great misunderstandings in, in my observation with Christianity is how people think that change actually happens. 
Now, there's kind of the, the, the psychosis and the sociology behind change, and, and there's always validity to that. But, but real deep heart change happens in an unexpected way. Let me, let me tease out a few ways that, that, uh, that maybe you might have understood change to happen. One of, one of the ways that, that a lot of us think that change happens is through self-effort and through inner strength. This is kind of that the, the new age flavorism that's going on. It's like the, the, the positive thinking, the internal aspect, like look within yourself and you'll become a better person. It's, it's kind of the, the pull yourself up by the bootstraps and, and make yourself better perspective. Uh, another option for, for change happens when, when change comes through self-denial and discipline. This is the religious flavor. So these are the people that think that it is something that we do, particularly spiritual things, that will change us. If we get into spiritual habits or disciplines, if we faithfully attend church or regularly read our Bible or diligently pray for extended amounts of periods, that somehow is going to change us. The Bible actually tells us something radically different. And today's passage is going to draw that out. The Bible actually tells us that the only way people can change is through an encounter with grace. You see, Christianity is diametrically opposed to every single other religion and worldview, primarily because of this. It is based on grace. Um, Christianity is not a, a religion of rules. Some of you who have grown up around the church have primarily associated your faith with rule keeping. That the Bible is some extensive law book that God has given us to follow. You know, the dotting our I's, crossing our T's of religion, and somehow that that's going to make us better people. You see, what Christianity teaches us and what we'll see today is that, that God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, to follow all the rules for us. You see, the history of God's people and the history of your life is that you are not a good rule follower. And so God had to come and do what you couldn't do for yourself. And so what that does for us today and how we'll draw that out today is that provides the most secure and warm relationship with God you could ever have. Because a relationship that's based on grace is exactly the opposite of a relationship that's based on law. Law-based relationships are fragile. Law-based relationships are rigid. They're tense. You have to walk on eggshells around people that are keeping judgment over the law over you. And God does not relate to us as Christians like that. So how do you know when you're beginning to understand Christianity? Here's how you know, and here's what today's passage will teach us, is that when you begin to see, you are completely helpless. That's what, that's what Ephesians is beginning to do. It's reminding us of our helplessness, and it's ultimately pointing us to the source of hope. Here's the bottom line I want to show you today from the passage, is that God's grace invites you to come as you are, yet it insists that you will not stay that way. Let me repeat it one more time. God's grace invites you to come as you are, yet it insists that you won't stay that way. Uh, I mentioned the passage kind of lays itself out really in two kind of don't do this, do this type of scenario. So today we're going to look at two things in the passage. We're going to look at the old man, the new man. 
So the old man in verses 17 down through 19, let's uh, consider what God has for us there. Uh, my wife and I lived in uh, New Orleans a, a little while back. We went there in 2006, which was the year after Hurricane Katrina, if you remember that. And uh, 2006, we had just arrived to New Orleans. We had never been there. We weren't there pre-Katrina. We had we had just arrived, and we were we were helping with some some ministry taking place there, relief efforts. And it, I believe it was the night that we had got there. You know, when you get to a new place and you've got a you're missing some things, you've got to make the Walmart run, right? And so we had just got there, not familiar with the area, and so you find Walmart. I think this was pre-smartphones, so. We didn't have, you know, the, our phones telling us, you know, every turn to make. And, uh, and so we were trying to figure it out. We kind of knew where the Walmart was and we figured it out. And, and so we, we thought we were headed to Walmart. And we hopped on the freeway and we're driving and we kind of, okay, Walmart's up here, up off the frontage road. And we, we, we keep driving. We're looking for the exit and, and we passed Walmart, right? It's like, kind of like, well, there was Walmart. And, and we, we kept driving and about probably five minutes later, you know, there wasn't an exit for a while. It was one of those ones like, where's this exit going to be? And the next sign that we saw was, uh, welcome to Mississippi. And um, <laughs> it was welcome to Mississippi. And so though we thought we were headed to Walmart in New Orleans, we actually ended up in, in Mississippi somehow. And so we got turned around and we, we ended back up at, uh, at Walmart. Um, but here, here's a connection I, I want to make with, with kind of this initial touching point is, is we are all headed somewhere, right? We're, we're headed somewhere. And the reality is that where you were headed and, and where you think you're headed is true regardless of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me repeat this. There's a reality to where you're headed and regardless of where you say you're headed, that's where you'll end up. And so how do we know where we're headed? Well, the signs tell us, right? So you can say you're going to Walmart in New Orleans, but if the signs tell you you're going to Mississippi, you're going to Mississippi, right? So today's passage gives us some, some signs, and, and Paul continues to remind us, he will not let us forget who we were in our unbelief. And so there's some things that he draws out, and, and they're really dark and heavy things, but they're things that we need to hear. And so he gives us some signs of unbelief, and I want to touch on those briefly here. The first sign of unbelief you see in verse 17. He, 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 he puts this opposition between walking with the Gentiles and now walking in the Lord. And so he says, don't walk like the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Okay, that's kind of a, a jargon-laden term. Here's, here's how you need to understand this. The first sign of unbelief is actually empty, purposeless thinking. That's how, that's how that futility of the mind is. Unbelief brings about this empty, void, devoid of God type of thinking. And so when you think of unbelief, we need to primarily be thinking about the realm of the mind. Um, do you know what the original design of the mind was for? It wasn't for just mathematics. It wasn't just for observing you know, general things or, or personal relationships. Those are parts of the mind. The original design of the mind was to see and to perceive God and his revelation to us. He made us to see him. That's what the mind was created for. And with the entrance of sin into our fallen world, our minds became empty and unable to see that. That's the first sign of unbelief. 
second sign as the spiral continues of unbelief is, is in verse 18, the first part of it. It's darkened understanding that not only is our mind uh, unable to see, but our reasoning is clouded. It's, it's, it's unable to perceive rationally without help. And so Romans chapter 1 verse 21 tells us this, that for although they knew God, uh, Paul is speaking of the entirety of human existence, although everyone knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so Paul paints this picture of not only the mind, but the reasoning, unable to see and to perceive and rationalize God. The result is found in verse 18, the third sign of unbelief, is that we're alienated from God. So unbelief has compromised and provided this great breach between God and the world. And so the alienation that humanity experiences is due to our unbelief. And why is it? Is it, is it because of outside circumstances? Or is it because there's been a false teaching? Well, no. It says that it's internal. Look at the end of verse 18. It says that it's due to their hardness of heart. Now, in order to understand that phrase in its fullness, you have to understand how the Bible uses the word heart. The heart is not just the, the organ that we identify as, as the, the, the blood-pumping organ in our bodies. The heart was the center, the seat of the person. The mind, the will, the emotions. Everything that a person was was contained in the heart. The heart is the steering wheel of the person that directs that person. And the Bible tells us that the heart becomes hard. It's impenetrable. It's calloused, as the passage will move on and tell us. And so the problem with humanity falls squarely not on other people. It falls squarely on our own shoulders, that it's within us that the problem is. And then the result is in verse 19 and 20. Well, unbelief leads to this giving over of sensuality and greediness for impurity. Unbelief leads to ungodliness, not the other way around. Because here, I think, I'm making an assumption here, I think many of us think that what makes us ungodly or sinful is what we do. The actions we commit, the words that we say, even maybe the thoughts that we think. But actually what the passage is telling us that it's not what we do that makes us bad, it's who we are that makes us bad. And so what comes out of us, as Jesus taught us, what comes out of the overflow of the heart is, what, is actually what was in there already. And so here, the symptoms of unbelief are the actions of sin, but the real problem is the unbelief, not the sin. You see, Christianity addresses us from the inside out. Here's, here's how I want to make some application point for you. You need to know that the old man is filled with unbelief and can only be changed by disbelief. Only unbelief can be changed when you become when you come into an encounter with grace that is disbelievable. In other words, it is so amazing, it is so awe-striking to you that it can actually get inside of you 
and change you. Do you know what the Bible tells us about our hearts? It tells us that they're hard, they're calloused, they're stone, but it also tells us that God's the God who changes hearts, that he actually takes the heart of stone and he softens it and he makes it a heart of flesh. And so the Bible tells us that if you want to change, don't work on the outside symptoms first, work on the inside condition, and you can't even do that. What terrible news is that? Is that the worst advice you've ever heard? Work on this, but you can't even do it? Well, here's the good news. If, if you're here today, as perhaps you're teetering on the edge of unbelief. Now, maybe you've been around the church and and you've been in and out, and, and you're kind of doubting things about, you know, the, the church and the Bible, and Christianity, and you're kind of hanging out in that arena. Maybe that's you today, or maybe you're here today, and you are outright not a Christian, and, and I'm glad you're here, first of all. I applaud you for being at church today, because I think Christianity has something to say to the unbeliever, and it says something like this, that you cannot take your belief, belief, unbelief away. You can't. You can't read it away. You can't think it away. You, know, you can't philosophize it away. You can't work it away. You can't reason it away. You can't fill it away. You can't strive it away. You cannot get rid of your unbelief. And that uncomfortable place is actually a really good place to be. Because here's what Christianity tells you. It says that you need to cry out for help. That you need to come to an end of yourself an end of your thinking and rationalizing everything away, and that you need to ask God to give you belief. Now, if you're here today as a Christian, that's old news for you. That's the old man. And so God is showing us now what the new man looks like today. So the terrible news about unbelief squares us up directly with the good news about belief in the new man. So let's, let's spend a majority of our time there looking at the new man in verses 20 down to the end. Uh, I love it when the Bible gives us illustrations that we already understand. Like this week, I didn't have to come up with some kind of witty and winsome illustration to describe this principle because the Bible actually gave it to us. The principle that, that God is going to teach us here is what I'll just call the putting on or putting off and the putting on principle. You get this because you all came in clothes to church today. Okay, so we wear clothes as a human society in a fallen world. Yes, in the garden, my kids are still fascinated with the fact that they were naked there. I, we just, we don't get that. We don't understand the whole no shame thing, but all of us wear clothes because we live in a fallen world. And so the, the Bible here in this passage is giving us this example of putting something off and putting something on. We, we deeply relate to this. Verse 22 tells us to put off the unbelieving old man. This is what we would usually identify as conversion. This is that moment of belief, right? Where you move from unbelief to belief. It's a one-time action where you put something off. Verse 24 tells us that we are to put something on. The putting on of a new wardrobe. It says put on the new self. Some translations might say man. Some translations might say life. It's the idea that you are putting on this new order that God has given you. And what has God given you in Christ? Well, in our confession, our words of assurance, it told us that Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. And so in the cross, we see Jesus taking our sin upon himself. In fact, he clothed himself with our filth, 
satisfying everything that should have come to us, and in exchange gave us his righteousness. And so as Christians, that is what we put on, is not the righteousness that you somehow have mustered up, but the righteousness that Christ has earned for you. This is that one-time act of belief too. This is not an ongoing thing. It's the act of Christ clothing us in his righteousness. So here's where you need to pay attention. Verse 23. Verse 23, let me read it again, says, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So verse 22 and verse 24 were in a different tense. I'm not going to get into the grammar, but they're in different tenses, basically saying these were one-time events that have already happened if you're in Christ, if you're a, a Christian. Verse 23 is in the present tense, and that is suggesting that this is a continual process of renewing our minds in the gospel. And so here's one of the things that I want to clear up for you that I think can be confusing about Christianity. We, um, we use theological terms for a reason. They, they help us categorize who God is, and, and, and you know, we, we talk about you know, glorification, we talk about adoption and sanctification and justification and glorification and all of these big words. And, and, and I know sometimes we lose you in that, but I want to introduce you to two words today. And I want to put some distinctive categories on them because I think they're going to help you in your Christian walk. Here's the two words I want you to know today. The first one is justification. Okay, justification. This is the one-time declarative act of God making you legally righteous in his sight. Um, there, here, if you're a note taker, you can kind of put it this way. Some people use this. It, it's a helpful analogy. It, it breaks down on a number of levels, and I'm sure the theologians in the room will, will let me know that after the service. But you can look at justification as this. It's just as if I never sinned. Okay? So it's this idea that when God sees the believer who's trusting in Christ, he no longer sees his sin he sees the righteousness that God has robed him in. It's a one-time act, justification. Let me introduce you to the second term. The second term is sanctification. Okay? Sanctification is the continual process of God working sin out of you and making you more like Jesus. Okay? So there, here's why I think there's a confusion. I think that many of us confuse the Christian life with we must continually justify ourselves, okay? That this is a process, and it's not. What, what God has shown us in Christ is that he has put the old man to death on the cross. That in his death, you were with him. This was not just some theoretical death for a general people. You were on the wood with him. Listen to the way Galatians chapter 2 talks about it. Paul, the one who's writing Ephesians, says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Believer, you need to know this that Christ has fully paid the penalty that should have come your way. That, that all of the unbelief that the old man was described, the empty thinking, right, the seared and hardened heart, 
You know, the, the, the sensuality, the, the greediness for impurity, all of that was put to death on the cross. And in that moment, God's people were justified. It is a one-time act of Christ on the cross for his people. And upon believing, you get that. Now, here's where it works out in your own life, is in that sanctification realm. So the, the, the tricky thing that, that Paul is teaching us here is that, yes, God has dealt with us and our sin in full, but it's not gone yet, right? It's been punished, but not eradicated, right? It's been penalized, but not evicted. This is the struggle that we live in, that our sin has been dealt with legally, but it still creeps in on us all the time. And so that's how the gospel is now moving us towards not justifying ourselves, but becoming more like Jesus. And he's going to lay that out in very specific terms in verses 25 down through the end. Uh, one of the, the blessings of being married is that you get to watch shows you normally otherwise would not watch, right? You begin to have a love uh, for the, the chick flick. You just, they're predictable, but you still watch them, right? My wife loves some, some television shows on TLC, and one of those shows that I was introduced to years ago is called What Not to Wear. <laughs> now, for those of you that have not had the privilege of watching this savvy show, What Not to Wear is premised on, this people, on, on people that basically don't know how to dress. And so you are either nominated, or I think in the early years of the show, they would actually just go out on the street and kind of pull you aside and say, can we give you a makeover, you know, kind of thing. And, and in What Not to Wear, the, the whole premise of the show was that we're going to show you how to dress, right? And so they would give them this sweeping makeover. They'd give them this wardrobe. And they would just, it would transform the person. And it would, at the end of the show, you would, you would see this glaring confidence that would come out of this person formerly unable to dress themselves, now being provided a wardrobe and able to dress themselves. And, and in one of the episodes that I caught, it actually happened to be the very last episode. I'm pretty sure it's over. I think it was the last episode. I don't know if they've made a comeback. I was happy to see that it was over. But in the very last episode, you know, as a preacher, you're always kind of looking for connections. And so I found this, this gem at the last episode. One of the, uh, one of the participants in the show, one of the, the, the kind of the hosts, said this about the show in general. He said this. He said, at first, I thought the essence of the show was making snarky remarks about people's outfits. But as it turns out, it's actually about taking stock of who you are and communicating that non-verbally to the That's incredibly empowering. Did you hear that? He said it's not just about the outfits and kind of making comments. It's about taking stock of who you are and then communicating that to the world. See, this passage is telling us to show Jesus to the world by how we conduct our lives. It's telling us to wear the clothes of Christ's righteousness, the justification that's been given to you, and then go and show it to the world. Uh, these could be seven sermons in themselves, or five sermons in themselves in these seven verses, but just touching on verses 25 to 32, what are the ways that we're supposed to carry ourselves? Well, verse 25, we're to be truthful and honest with each other. 
verses 26 and 27, or to be righteously angry. Yes, there is an anger that is righteous, but the anger that is not righteous is to be resolved. Verse 28, or to do honest labor, work, and then be generous with God has given to us. Verse 29, we're to use words of grace to build others up. This is not the go-to passage against cussing. It's actually a passage that says use words that build people up. Verses 31 to 32 tells us that we are to be a people that are kind, tender, and forgiving because that's exactly the way that God has been to us in Christ. And so these are the clothes that are to cover us because Christ has made us right. The new man is defined by what Christ has done for us, not by what we do for Christ. Do you hear that? Like, like has that hit you yet? Like, your life here and forevermore is defined as a Christian by what Christ has done for you, not by what you do for him. I think we need to hear that more often. Yes, this passage gives us this kind of impetus towards moving in the direction of godliness, right? Moving towards honesty and truth and integrity and generosity, faithfulness and love and tenderness and forgiveness. But read those as rules to be followed to receive acceptance from God, you will be crushed. The good news for believers today is that you are defined by what Christ has done for you not what you will do for him. So why do we struggle with change so much? Why is it that change is difficult? I think there's a, a number of answers to that. I think part of it is what I kind of alluded to in the introduction is that we go about changing the wrong way, that we work on the externals before we work on the internals that we think the symptoms of unbelief, namely our actions of sin, are primarily our problem when in reality it's the internal unbelief that brings all of that about. I think another reason we struggle with change is because of that tension between sin being dealt with legally but also still present with us in reality. Like for, for whatever reason, could God have taken away sinfulness in that moment of justification he could have theoretically he could have completely abolished the presence of sin in that moment but in his goodness and wisdom it's still here it makes us lean heavier on grace it makes us more dependent on God if you're here today as as a non-christian again applaud you for being here I need you to know this that your biggest problem is your unbelief. Your biggest problem is not your lifestyle choices. Your biggest problem is not your habits or your hangups or your vices, your addictions, your struggles. All of those things might be problematic, but they're simply symptoms. Your biggest problem is your unbelief. See, today, God and his grace are inviting you to come as you are. That the Bible doesn't require you to clean up all of those things about you that you think are unacceptable. It tells you to come as you are, but it almost also promises that you will never stay that way. If you're here today as a Christian, uh, you need to be reminded time and time again, one of the things I think that the Bible is given to us for is as an antidote to spiritual amnesia. We are prone to forgetting who we once were, right? We, we think that somehow we've arrived. You believers today need to know that your belief was not fixed by your own doing. 
You did not somehow rid yourself of unbelief and somehow merit your way into belief. You didn't read your way into belief. You didn't smart your way into belief. You didn't find your way into belief. God gave you belief. And that is something to be deeply humbled by. That our unbelief is our greatest problem and God has resolved that for sinners in Christ. So the exhortation to us, the closing exhortation to us today is verse 2, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Here's how Paul closes this section. Let me read it again. He says, therefore, because of all of this, because of the old man who you were, the new man whom you have become, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. Love that gives everything away. Because you don't need anything. You can give all of yourself because Christ has given all of himself. That you can be hurt in relationships. That you can be vulnerable in the church, that you can be giving of your time, that you can give it all away because Christ has given it to you and the kindness that God has shown us in Christ is pleasing in his sight. It's the fresh aroma in the nose of God. God's grace invites you to come today as you are and it, and it insists that you will not stay that way. Let's pray and ask God to do that in us. Father, I know, I know what conviction feels like. That it can be uncomfortable, can be awkward, and we run from it. And uh, when you do that to us, that's you changing us. And that's you working belief into us. And so, Lord, our prayer, my prayer today for us today is that you would remove unbelief and that you would give us belief that you would perhaps today for the first time for some, that you would put off the old man and put on the new man for sinners who need grace, that you would change us from the inside out. So Lord, we ask that you would do this work in our church. We ask that you would do this work in our city. We long um, to have a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth where sin is eradicated and fully dealt with. But until then, Lord, we trust in Christ and his mercy to us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.